Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Today, we're featuring excerpts from a fascinating archival interview from the City University of New York's Leon Levy Center for Biography. In February 2019, authors Bridget M. Davis and Columbia University professor Farrah Jasmine Griffin sat down in front of a Leon Levy Center audience for a lively discussion about Davis's book, The World According to Fanny Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers, published by Little Brown and Company. This memoir and biography mix explores how Davis's mother supported her family and her community for more than 30 years as a numbers runner in Detroit's illegal but influential lottery system. Here's interviewer Farrah Griffin. I was telling Bridget that I, I was reading this book um, and it got to the point where I wouldn't read it on public transportation because I didn't know if I would laugh out loud or start crying or doing or I do both so um, it's a remarkable book and your mother is a um, figure that we aren't used to seeing in the pages of novels nonfiction fiction so I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about your journey to writing this book Mm -hmm. Um, how did you get there yeah I've carried the secret around forever Um, because it was the most natural thing to not tell. I have a friend that has been my best friend since we were fourth grade, in the fourth grade, and she spent lots of time in my house. And when I finally sat down to interview her for this book and told her, she was like devastated. What? She had no idea. And that made me realize, wow, we really did keep that secret. (laughs) We were pretty good at it. But uh, what really happened is that I'd wanted to write in my whole life, and I just never had the nerve. And even after my mom died, I didn't really have a reason, per se, to keep the secret, but I still just couldn't tell. Just couldn't. I felt like I was betraying her, so I just didn't do it. And then one day, about 10 years ago, my son was about nine, and he looked at a photo of my mom that I kept on the nights on the uh, side table, a picture of her at her high school prom, beautiful photo. And he just looked at it and he said, "Mom, what was she like?" And I stumbled out a response. I said, "Oh, she was amazing," but my heart sank. It just sank because I realized I had kept that secret so well. I had kept who she was a secret from her own grandchildren. And I just decided at that point, enough is enough. And I started this journey Mm -hmm. to to really get the story told. When you read the book, you get Fanny Davis's story, you get Bridget's story, you get, um, you also get the story of that generation of people who migrated to Detroit and made a life in Detroit. Detroit is a character very vivid character here. So what did you have to work with? Like, what, what was your material? There was your mother's life, but yeah. to really flesh that out, what did you have to do? 
You know, I think that I've been preparing to write this book my entire life because I write novels in a similar kind of way where it's almost collage-like. I'm pulling all these different elements into the story. I love history and I love adding um, historical elements even to fiction. So when I got to this, I did one thing first and then I knew the rest would come easily. I went to my mom's remaining sister, my aunt Florence, who just, uh, she just loved the ground my mother walked on, you know. She just told me recently how much she misses her. I mean, it was something uh, for me to think about doing this without her blessing. I couldn't. So I went to her and I said to her, Aunt Florence, I'm really thinking about writing this book about my mom and I'm gonna tell everything about her life and the numbers, what do you think? And I didn't know what she would say. I knew if she didn't approve, I wouldn't do it. And she looked at me and she said, honey, I'll help you tell it. <laughs> because what Fanny did was unheard of and people ought to know. And that was the first time I realized how proud everyone was of her achievement, and it made me understand there's a secret that has nothing to do with your pride over that person. They're not related, and I had conflated them in my head. And in fact, her thing was, no, it's amazing. Tell everybody, I'll help you. And that sent me on my way. I did two dozen interviews, and I had my mom's big brass trunk that I had inherited. She had a lot of things in there. I just. Whatever I found, I thought this is part of the narrative and I'm going to try to weave it in. And then I did my own research. I was asked about having a source list in the book and my editor was saying, you know, it's not that typical for a memoir. I said, well, the journalist in me really wants that source list. She said, okay, put it together. And I did and I was stunned. I was stunned and I wrote the book. I had 100 sources. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there they are. I didn't know I was doing all that, but everything I found led me to something else because you can live a life, but that doesn't mean you understand the context around what's happening in, that, in your life at the time that um, you know, it takes place. So I have to tell you, it was my own curiosity that led me down all those paths. Well, one of the things that you do, I mean, and, and as an academic, I'm like, oh, wow, there is a value to the work that scholars do beyond oh, yes. just for, you know, the 10 of us who read it. Oh, um, because, you know, so scholars. it was really wonderful seeing what you do with so much of the sort of secondary sources. But the other thing that you do that this book demands, and you do it so well, um, is in order for us to appreciate what your mom accomplishes, you have to explain the context. Like you have, you know, you, you couldn't assume right. that everybody reading it understood the numbers, or even the people who grew up. I grew up in a family that played numbers, you know, all, all the time. But I didn't, I didn't, I never understood how they really worked, yeah. you know. And so, was that knowledge that you always had? Was uh -huh. that something that yeah. you had to? I mean, and it's not didactic at all. It, yeah. You know, it's like the mystery is, oh, you know. Yeah, yeah it's funny because the other thing my Aunt Florence said to me when I got her permission was, she said, I know that Fanny didn't make you learn anything about the numbers, <laughs> so I'll help you with that too, because I know you don't really know. <laughs> she was, I was like, Phew. Because, you know, I lived around it, but I didn't really understand the intricacies of it. Yeah. And so I really did lean on her help. And I also was grateful that there was research out there, specifically a lot more around the numbers in Harlem. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's an incredible seminal book called Playing the Numbers, and it's about the numbers in Harlem during the interwar years. And so that gave me a lot of understanding mm -hmm. of its history. Mm -hmm. But I was learning that too. Wow. That's why I'm, I was like, wow. I was, act, I was literally like that when I was discovering things. Yeah. Well, yeah. after you give it to I mean, after you sort of give us the complexities, I mean, I think for me as a reader, it just made me appreciate even more your mother's accomplishments and like her brilliance and her creativity. Yeah. So can you just talk a little bit, because I think most people are familiar with the legal state-run numbers, yeah. um, how someone like your mother confronts that challenge when the state decides they're going to go into the business of the daily numbers? Like one, what that challenge is to her business, right, right. and then how she confronts it. Yeah, you know, it is true. A lot of people, especially younger people, think that the lottery was always there because it's always been in their lives. But the lottery, legal lotteries, are really a recent phenomenon, so to speak, because it was not until the 60s that they became re-legalized. They had a history of being legal as far back as the 19th century. So Detroit, Michigan, decided finally that they would legalize the lottery. Everyone knew that the, there was this underground lottery business that was being run by blacks. And when they legalized it first, it was just like a weekly lottery. It was not in competition with the numbers. The numbers were every day, six days a week. People took that seriously. They played daily. Um, and so no one worried about it that much. But then they got around to their real goal, which was to be in direct competition. So they created something called the daily. And it was literally whole cloth a ripoff, down to the slogans. What'd you dream last night? You can play it. I mean, this is running in the Detroit Free Press, like a full page ad. You know, it was so stunningly, um, such theft, really. I say that they usurped the business. And my mom was concerned because people, she worried that her loyal customers would finally, you know, say, well, it's legal, I'll just play that. Uh, even though there were some benefits to playing with her. You didn't have to pay taxes <laughs> if you won. But also, she let people play on credit. And she let people play for as small, as, as small amount as they wanted. And those were things that the state didn't do. But then the state did have an advantage. Every evening on the local news station, they would announce the winners of the numbers, the three-digit winners. And you can't compete with that. People loved being able to just see the winners um, at one time all together without any complication. And the numbers were a little more complex right. Right. when you had to sort of wait to hear what the, the winners were. And I don't know, she just decided that if you can't beat them, join them. And she got this idea that she would use the state lottery's numbers as the winners for her own underground business. <laughs> and it worked. People love that. It worked. She's, I mean, she's, she's just brilliant. And, yeah. and she's also, I think, one of the things that you talk about, both specifically to her, but then in terms of the history of the numbers and the people who run the numbers, the black bankers, and is the level of, um, with your mother, it's just almost extreme generosity yeah. and then philanthropy. And I think that that was something, like, you know, it made her so kind of well-rounded, like the generosity to everybody. Yeah. And then the history, the sort of philanthropic history 
of the people who are making money off of the numbers was something that I had never yeah. known about. Yeah, people didn't realize that. I mean, my mom was very generous. It was just her nature. But also, she was following in a tradition. That's what numbers runners, big numbers men, and in her case, one of the only women mm -hmm. doing this, that's what they did with their largesse. Their understanding was they were race men and race women, and they were pillars of the community. So they helped to provide all those services that weren't available to blacks, thanks to discrimination, racism, segregation. They were doing things like providing a hotel for black entertainers to stay in, because they couldn't come to Detroit, for instance, and stay in a downtown hotel. It wasn't allowed. They provided uh, home loans, because blacks could not get loans. The FHA would not insure loans that were for homes where any black person lived. So if you were a black person <laughs> trying to buy a home, you couldn't get it insured by the FHA. That's the federal government that was ensuring that blacks didn't get that most basic opportunity to uh, have a foothold in this country and buy a home through a home loan from a bank. So numbers men often provided those resources. I mean, the, the, the examples are just so many. And, and one more that I love is that the NAACP, particularly in Detroit, was fledgling back in the day. And it was a numbers man who came in and infused it with resources, propped it up, and made sure it was viable. So when the civil rights movement came along and Detroit was a hotbed of civil activism, they had those organizations uh, available to them largely thanks to the resources of numbers men. Yeah. You know, and, it, and it's sort of the historical context and then your mother's own navigating of it, right? The stuff about housing and buying property and all of those things. It's just fascinating how you weave all of that together. Um, one question that I had is, did you ever have a sense of her artistic ambition? Was there any, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, my mom was unique. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, of course. Um, but also because she wasn't just any one thing. I mean, she was a great mom. She took great pride in being a mother. Like, that meant a lot to her. She was also a businesswoman and very proud of her business, too. And she was a good friend, proud of that proud of being a philanthropist. All those things meant a lot to her. Helping young women meant a lot to her. Also, for as long as I can remember, my mom was writing a story, which she ultimately called a Romana Clef. But she would call it her book for years. She wrote it longhand in a black binder on unlined paper in different colors of ink. And she did this when she had free time, which was almost never. But when she could get a chance to go on a vacation, she'd take her book with her. And I never knew what was in it, but I knew she was writing this book based on some story she had heard growing up in Nashville. And so that meant, it's funny, I took it for granted. It was just this thing she did. But now I know she was really, more than anything, I felt like I was getting permission to be a writer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Definitely. And it's sure enough. In my early 20s, my first efforts in short stories, I put them in a binder. <laughs> and I was writing them longhand. Yeah. Um, but one of my greatest joys is that I was able to take that story, which I still have, 
It sits on my bookshelf in my office. I was able to take that story and take excerpts of it and put it in this book, which felt to me like an opportunity to finally get her a chance to be published. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's beautifully narrated. And she's a good writer, right? She's a great, yeah. She's I mean, a that's, great storyteller. Yeah, good that was what it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what were, and you talk about this a little bit. I mean, you do, not a little bit, you, you do it quite a bit, actually. What were the difficulties for you, if any, growing up as the indulged baby girl of a woman who was involved in this line of work? Were there tensions? Were there difficulties? I didn't experience uh, difficulty in the sense that her life was something I had to contend with or that the secret was difficult. It wasn't hard to keep. It was so my normal. It was all I knew. By the time I was born into the family, it was just what we did. So I never struggled with keeping that secret. Mm -hmm. That wasn't an issue. Mm -hmm. I think that the biggest stress was just seeing her stressed and knowing we all knew that if she got a big enough hit, would she be able to pay it? Would she be busted out, as they say? And what would that mean for our lives? So that was always un sort of humming underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there I was, you know, sort of not wanting for anything. The day I told her I want to go to Spelman College, she didn't blink an eye. So I just thought, things are good. And when I look back, really what was happening was Despite the tension, despite the sort of underlying knowledge of what could happen, it never did. My mom always figured it out. Yeah. And so that was something I just got very comfortable assuming would always happen. I've been following you on Instagram. Oh, really? <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, she's here, she's there, she's everywhere. Um, as you go around talking about the book, and one of the things that I, you know, each time I see you somewhere, I wonder what the reception is, has been like for you in the different places that you've Unbelievable. gone. Unbelievable. So it's been incredible. I, I've, I've been a few places at this point. I just kind of started the tour. So I went to Philadelphia. I went to Washington, DC. And I could see there was interest. There was always someone who would stand up and share their story about someone they knew in their family who had been in, who'd been in the numbers. But it was after I, I went to Detroit. And I just got back on Tuesday, and I was there five days, and it blew my mind. It really did. Not only was it like, you know, hometown girl makes good, <laughs> and I'd show up at these events, and there'd be people from every phase of my life. There was always someone, I did three different events there, and there was always someone who stood up to tell the audience what my mom had done for him or her. Yeah. Everywhere I went. Wow. That was so moving. It was so moving. And I'll tell this other anecdote because it's so sweet to me, and then I will really answer your question. But um, I have a line in the book where I say that my neighborhood in Detroit, uh, in fact, my own blo my block where I grew up, was integrated for a few years before white flight really set in. And that my first playmate was a little white girl named Susie who lived next door to me. And I just say, I really, I remember Susie. And I remember my mom saying, that little girl didn't care anything about color. And it seemed like for a while her parents didn't either. Well, I did a reading at the Detroit Public Library, and who showed up? <laughs> Susie! <laughs> she drove all the way from Kalamazoo, Michigan, a little distance. Wow. And 
she had just read the book, and when she saw that line, she was like, that's me, that's me, and showed up to, this, to, to my event, you know, with a gift of these Petoskey stones, that's like Michigan's <laughs> official stone, and I mean, it was the whole thing, because we used to play together in a little sandbox, which she reminded me of. It was something. I just thought, how beautiful, anyway. Um, but what's really mostly happening when, in Detroit and everywhere else, I figured it out finally. People were so grateful, are so grateful, to be able to finally give voice to this knowledge. I'm not the only one. So many people had this experience in their lives, one way or another, and they've been keeping it quiet. And finally, they can say, thank you. That was what I kept hearing. Thank you for giving voice to this. And then I saw the love that people have around the people in their own lives who did this and, their, and the respect they have. I mean, the, at one point, this older man got choked up telling me how grateful he was. Because what was he doing? Remembering the people in his life who'd worked really hard and made these choices to try to give him a better life. I feel like that's what's happening. That's what it's tapping into. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I am, was grateful to see was, um, and you, you know, you're very explicit about this, is a portrayal of a working class black community where people have aspirations and goals and drive and fun and love. And I mean, I think it's one of the, one of the most vibrant portraits of working class black people. Um, the music, the, you know, all of those things. Uh, I was trying to think, I'm like, I don't know much fiction, nonfiction that gives us that version of black life. So I'm grateful for that. Thank you for mm -hmm. saying that. You know, we write the books we want to read, I think. Yeah. And I, I knew, back to Spellman, I was the odd woman out, I knew that. I had come from an urban environment, I came from a public school, I came from working class parents who had not gone to college. I was not the norm, okay? Mm -hmm. And I could feel it. And yet, there was no shame in it. I just thought, why am I one of the only ones? Because those of us out there who have my particular background are hidden from public view. That's the problem. And I felt it even then, and I've been carrying this around a long time. I sort of coined this phrase, blue collar, black bourgeoisie. <laughs> that's what we were. Yeah. And so that's some of it, you know, just wanting to, to make us visible. Yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah. that's what it felt like. I was like, oh, they're my people. <laughs> yeah. You know, there we yeah. are. Um, so I have one last question for you. You are a filmmaker, yeah. made a wonderful film. Um, that we screened many years yes, ago. Yes, you did. <laughs> and like, are you thinking about that with this book? This book to me read like it was ready for the movies. <laughs> Your mother is like, I mean, she's glamorous, she's beautiful, she's generous, she's complicated, she's, you know, Detroit in the 60s is amazing. So are you thinking that way yet? Or is that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, clearly, I would love to see this as a film. TV show, film, I, I realized looking back that all that sort of screenwriting experience like, came to bear also on the book because I think I was thinking very cinematically as I was writing it. Uh, and yes, there's been interest. 
that's that's what I'll say. There's been interest, and I hope it turns into more. I hope so too. Do. I want to yeah. see. I want to yeah. see this. Keep. I want to read it, teach it, see it, all of those things. So. I have one more thing I want to share, yeah. and it's a little bit of a brag, but I just have to share it. Share it. I, I got an email from someone who whom said he was an arch, He said he was an archivist for the Schlesinger. Yeah, the Schlesinger. Yeah, Schlesinger. Uh -huh. up at Radcliffe. At Radcliffe at Harvard. It's for the history of women, mm -hmm. right? And he said to me we really want your mom's papers. And I was like, papers? <laughs> I love it. And he said, no, I understand there are no real records from the numbers left at this point. But he's like, she's a lot of things. She was a lot of things. And anything that you can provide, we want that kind of history. Yeah. We want that to be part of what's available to people. And I was like, oh my god, Fanny. <laughs> Pretty awesome. And so that is exciting to me because I agree. I think that we need to begin to think much more broadly about who's valuable and whose story yeah. needs to be told. Yeah. I mean, I think because one of the things that people say is, you know, we, we can't write these stories because we don't have the archive. Right. But there you go. There you right? go. There you I might go. need your so, help with that, though. Well, thank you so much for this beautiful book and for everything. That was author Bridget M. Davis speaking with fellow author and Columbia University professor Farrah Jasmine Griffin in front of an audience in the City University of New York's Leon Levy Center for Biography on February 15, 2019. Bridget Davis's book, The World According to Fanny Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers, was published by Little Brown and Company in January 2019. Thanks again to the Leon Levy Center and to the featured authors for granting us permission to share this interview. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music and until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Bye.